We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. Just one more thing. Hey now. Oh boy. Holy mechanical armies. Mom always liked you best. Oh, she did. <laughs> you wanted to be one word. What is the other word? One of these days. Are we having fun yet? It's going to be legend. Wait for it. Now, you might very well think that, but of course I couldn't possibly comment. Bertie Helens agreed. Oh, come on! Missed it by that much. Good evening. Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound on Sides TV podcast. This is Kate Kalsik and I am joined as ever by Mr. Simon Howell. Howdy. How's it going, Simon? I'm gloriously caffeinated. Yay! Myself as Let's well. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah, I'm really, really amped to, to talk about some really crap television. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as as you will discover, it has not been the best week of television. I'm kind of actually longing for last week, where there was just nothing to talk about, let alone, yeah, what we have this week. But before yep. we get into that, you know, we'll get there. Uh, a, a quick mention, of course, our DVD shelf this week is going to be uh, The Outer Limits with Sound Outside contributor B- Bill Macy. And unfortunately, you were not able to join us for that. Do you have any thoughts on The Outer Limits here? Uh, I, I, I mean, we're talking about the original Outer Limits. And, yeah, we're talking old school. Yeah, and I thought I was going to be on the segment, so I did end up watching a bunch of it. And, I mean, obviously, I'm not scared by most recent sci-fi horror so the stuff from the 60s was not going to do it for me but i i did really enjoy watching those older episodes the you know the vintage effects and the old school acting and, and also seeing who pops up is really fun mm-hmm. I, I had a good time with it yeah it was fun talking with bill and that'll come a little you know later in the show at the, at the end um let's see we had some comments and tweets we heard from mario who is excited for smash he has been able to see the pilot which just prompts me to say how did you do that? And what are your ways? And can you teach me? Oh, oh, master. Because I would be interested to see that pilot. And that'll be premiering, of course, uh, in the next few months on, I believe, NBC. But he likes the pilot, and so he thinks it is promising and suggests that it's a lot more than just the music, despite what the ads are showing. And he's also pretty psyched for Amazing Race coverage from Dan. Uh, Dan Heaton will be covering Amazing Race once it comes back, along with Survivor. So that was cool. And let's see, Keith, uh, was we were talking about Prime Suspect being completely dead because uh, uh, NBC is going to burn off the last two episodes on January 22nd, which is a Sunday. And the first episode is going to be going up against the end of the NFC Championship. And the second episode is going to be going up against American Idol's third episode. So apparently they really don't care if anybody watches. Um, and then uh, uh... we also heard from uh, Michael. Now, because I had put out on Twitter, we can announce you're coming to Chicago. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I, I, I got one particularly colorful response to that, which you didn't get, and I won't repeat. Oh, okay, <clears throat> interesting. You'll have to tell me off air. I'm very curious about that. But we put out there, you know, we were trying to think of things to do in Chicago, because you know it's not like there's a lot of festivals and things going on in February, which is when you'll be here. Uh, Michael suggests that we recreate Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Now, the only problem I'm seeing with that is that there's no baseball in February. And even if there was, I don't take it that you're a baseball fan. So, No, uh, I have been to a baseball game, weirdly. Um, 
with uh, watching a defunct Montreal team play the Expos, rest in peace. Uh, but no, I, I can't describe myself as a as a baseball fan. But you know, Art Institute, you know, hit some restaurants, pretend to be the Sausage King of Chicago, Abe Froman. You know, there's some stuff we can do there. I think it was a fun suggestion. It'll be a good time. Yeah, it's going to be fun. And we're going to talk more about that, actually, at the end of the show. But let's move on for now. Let's see. At the website, soundonsite.org, we have reviews for a few shows that we're not going to be talking about here. So if you're interested in these shows, go check them out. We have reviews for Hell on Wheels by James Marola, Revenge by Louis Godfrey and Clea Major, uh, Sherlock by Katie Wong. Of course, the second episode aired over in the UK uh, this past Sunday, and it was another excellent uh, outing. Um, and so when that comes around here we'll talk about it when it airs over uh in the uh region one area and then finally mm-hmm. chuck as well covered by dan heaton uh, the reviews are up there i'm gonna check in on the finale for that what's your level of interest in in you know the chuck world as it wraps up its five season run uh admittedly very low uh, you know if i if i hear that it has like an amazing groundbreaking finale <laughs> It's not gonna. It's not gonna happen. Then I'll watch it. But I, I my level of investment, I don't think could possibly be lower. <laughs> well, you know, at least. Uh, Sorry, guys. You know, I, I I hear what you're saying. I'm more invested in the characters, but apparently still not invested enough to check in every week because that has been having new episodes. So that's one that maybe I should have yeah. tried to bolster this week's you know terrible pilots with some some chuck but uh mm-hmm. i do look forward to catching the the finale of that let's see we're going to be gearing up for sundance coverage at the at the website as well so if you're interested in more of the film side of things keep an eye to there and i'm going to be writing my article this week is going to be about mid-season shows so like mid-season replacement premieres um and i have some some thoughts on that and i, th- I think this the article is going to center around the notion of why there are so many uh successful mid-season uh premieres because you'd think you know if it gets shelved and pushed back it's like for example work it that maybe there's some problems with it but there are a lot of really successful shows that came out mid-season so i'm going to talk about that and also mm-hmm. of course last week my article was on uh, uh shows about starting over in you know and the the theme of new year's uh, resolutions i i did a list on that and i got some great uh suggestions from from listeners on twitter for that as well so thank you guys particularly uh ken and oh and one other person that I'm, I'm not remembering i apologize uh so so that's what's going to be going on at the website this week a lot of good stuff um I know we'd rather keep talking about website stuff and Chicago and all that good <laughs> things, but I think we do actually have to get get into our weekend TV, sir. Um, do we? Yeah, <laughs> let's let's just rip the bandaid off. <clears throat> Tuesday, the pilot of Work It. Go. Yeah. Go. Oh no, uh, we have to talk about this, huh? So, Work It has been the subject of intense curiosity, and you know the anticipation of utter revulsion since I would say since ABC's press conference last year, uh, wherein one, wherein one critic basically asked the, the head of ABC, why in (laughs) reference to the work it pilot to which he basically shrugged his shoulders and said, we thought it was fun. Uh, yeah, this show is, what's the opposite of good. Uh, it's really, 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 really bad. It's it takes a premise that I think most sitcoms would do away with as like a 
half a gag in like in like a in like a minute like a scene and it class. makes an, it tries to yeah it tries to make an entire sitcom out of it uh yeah i don't know it just it, it hurts my brain to think about it was one i mean i remember watching it and then of course when i talked to you about it later you, you said the same thing independently which i thought was hilarious watching the beginning of this episode uh of this series felt almost painfully similar to it's Louie, which was, of course, the <laughs> the terrible network sitcom that Louis C.K. Uh, did in one of his episodes of Louis season two that just was crushing his soul so completely he walked out after like five minutes. Um, mm -hmm. And it's almost exactly it's Louis, uh, at least in the in the home scenes before you get to the uh, the, the drag mm -hmm. and all of that. Now, the thing that I found so particularly astounding about work at was not just that it it's bad because there are a lot of bad pilots. which it is it's very bad it's not funny and you know even the most terrible or uninteresting premise can be saved if a show is funny it's not really that complex of a grading system usually for comedies but they managed to not be funny to and then to be misogynist and then to be racist all while while uh, using actors who have been good before and have been good in other things and utterly wasting them. So it was mm -hmm. sort of this astonishing level of terribleness. I kept waiting yeah. for it to stop, you know, finding new ways to offend my sensibilities. And then it, it well, and, and, and when you say your sensibilities are offended, don't give it, it's, I think it sounds like we're giving it a little bit too much credit, I think, because <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't really offended I was more of I was more insulted than offended. I suppose, like insulted that this actually made it to air, and what's I think what was particularly insulting about it is if you're going to be crass and and exploitative, then go for it, go all the way. Don't try to do this thing where you make it about morals at the end of the day, and, and you know try to have a oh, you dressing up as a woman is making me realize that I don't pay enough attention to my wife and all this yeah. nonsense. No, if you're, if you're, if you're going to be awful, just do it to the, do it for all 22 minutes, go for it. And they don't even do that. Yeah. So they, yeah. they really don't. That's the thing. You can be uh, somewhat misogynist and racist and all these other things. And if you're funny, you can probably get away with it. Trouble is it's not funny. Mm -hmm. And how do you think I make it through the day to day? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I think we could probably talk for quite a while about the like the gender politics in this thing are ridiculous. Like, I yeah, but let's but, just... but again, we're 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 giving it too much of our mental attention. Yeah, it doesn't deserve it. There are if you want to listen to some highly entertaining reviews, I would suggest checking out, for example, the Paul Goebel show. Their most recent episode has a delightful takedown uh, of the pilot and you know Steppenwall and Feinberg have covered it on on uh, their podcast as well there are lots of places you can go to find people completely bashing work it because that's what it deserves mm -hmm. let's just move on and and you can also just look at the ratings which are yeah I think some of the worst for a new ABC comedy ever yeah it's uh it's, it's so, nice I was hey. a little worried that it would somehow do well but it hasn't and that is mm -hmm. just encouraging I would like to quickly note, though, as as an anticipatory thing, as bad as the work at pilot is, it's not my least favorite pilot of the week. Ooh, 
So keep that in mind. <laughs> now, yeah. on Wednesday, we had some returning shows. ABC was, of course, back with new episodes. So we had Suburgatory um, and Modern Family and Happy Endings. Let's start with Suburgatory, Driving Miss Dahlia. Um, what did you what did you think about this episode? Uh, I think this may have been my least favorite episode of Suburgatory or, or close to it. I, I think the principal weakness for me was the Jeremy Sisto, Alan Tudyk plotline, which was not funny and also just reeked it you know my my pet peeve of like insane white privilege was just through the roof this week because you know oh are we country club people can i get into the country club here drive the bentley i've got the other car oh boy um some of the stuff with uh with the young with the youngins was okay we only got one scene of ali grant which is maybe why it was which is you know maybe why it's a weaker episode is i feel like quality of suburgatory is directly correlated to how much Allie Grant we get. Um, somebody can study that. And, you know, we also get the sort of romantic plot line for the, for the teens for the first time, which is kind of, eh, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know. Were you any more positive about it than me? I think I was more positive than you. I did enjoy the, the Sisto plot line, if only because we got more Alan Tudyk and he's often been, uh, very much a side player in the series. So I enjoyed spending a little more time with him. And I do think Sisto is pretty good with, with comedy when he's given it. So I, I was okay with that plot line. Um, the, the main takeaway I had on this episode was what was up with the music this week? Was it just me? It was, it was really loud. It was really obtrusive. Uh, I don't know. I just switched over to watching in high def. So maybe that's what it is. Maybe the sound mixing is different, but I, mm -hmm. that was the biggest thing I noticed. Uh, if I'm recalling correctly, I remember the music cues being very wacky. Yeah. Which was which was a little bit on the annoying side for sure. But I mean, I've, I've sort of gotten used to annoying soundtracks on sitcoms, even good ones. Uh, so it's 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 it tends to be a relief when they don't have any, like Parks and Rec, for instance. Uh, well, uh, unless uh, Mouse Rat is playing or something, but. Uh... Yeah, yeah, like yeah, diegetic music, but yeah, yeah. I scoring on on sitcoms tends to be bargain basement. Uh, material. I, I enjoyed the things that we got with Zalia. I, I I think she's fun. Um, it would have been nice to see more Cheryl Hines. I don't know how that would have been worked in, but I was more positive than you. But still, it. I feel like Suburgatory is not living up for me to its early pr uh, promise. Uh, but mm -hmm. it's still better than to transition Modern Family, which I I think I've decided that I'm done with at least for now. Uh, this episode, Lifetime Supply was it just wasn't funny. Um, and every joke that they went to, it, it felt incredibly sitcom-y, um, which it has managed to not feel like uh, this season, despite its uh, decrease in quality. Um, but every joke that they went to here has been done by this show before at least once, if not several times. And the characters and um, their, their, their relationships, particularly Cam and Mitchell, they just use the same three beats over and over again and i'm just tired of it i'm not laughing this this fantastic cast is being utterly wasted and i'm just gonna stop watching because it, it wasn't good there was one entertaining part of the episode which involved um mitchell agreeing with alex or alex that is agreeing with mitchell's reaction to something cam did and that prompting mitchell to realize that he's acting like a 14 year old girl that was funny the rest of the episode was not and so Goodbye, Modern Family. I'll check back in if you have a particularly notable episode. 
Um, a single tear. No, not even. I don't. I don't care enough for it to be a single tear because I've watched. That's one of my New Year's resolutions, by the way, to give up on show, like to stop watching shows that I have known are not good for weeks and weeks, just mm-hmm. out of some strange sense of loyalty. Um, so I'm I'm saying goodbye to Modern Family for now. Now we have Happy Endings, which followed it up. The Shrink, the Dare, her date, and her brother. Uh, what did you think of this one? Was it just me, or was the influence of Him Yim particularly strong on Happy Endings this week? Hmm. Now that you say that, yes. Uh, I didn't think of that. And and actually, I think that that actually this this is somewhat backhanded, I suppose. But I think that actually made for some of the only interesting moments on the show this week. I didn't think it, for them it was a landmark episode either. I mean, you had that whole con- conceptually kind of, you know, kind of high concept la- last half of the episode where, you know, some of the characters are out at the movie theater watching a bad rom-com and then the rest of the episode mirrors that, although, you know, d- d- you know refracting it in, in subtle ways. I thought that was clever, if not especially funny, um, and the, and I thought it was well executed. Other than that, I didn't, I thought it was kind of a labored episode and I didn't find most of it very funny. Um, I did very much enjoy Ken Marino in this episode. Um, I thought he was, he did a great job. He was the shrink. Um, we should say, of course, the premise, you know, for, for this episode was, let's see, it was, um, Penny and Dave end up being the center of this romantic comedy Thing. I don't really like if they're actually going that direction. Not happy with that. But if it's just a one episode thing, then okay, that whatever that works. Then we had it was Jade. hard to tell. Yeah, it's hard to tell if that's going to be continuing storyline or not. It's, especially because they just recently had the Alex and Dave thing at, in their last episode. So it's hard to tell. And then we had Jane and Max uh, escalating in a who is less vain off because of course they're both incredibly vain and brad and alex never hang out and don't actually know each other and then they come to bond over rom-coms so yeah there the other two storylines were okay for me the penny and dave thing started okay because of ken marina who i thought was very entertaining it's a shame it doesn't seem like he'll be back because i i want to see ken marino on tv every week in more stuff and that that might have been the that might have been like that was like ken marino dialed down to a two like mm-hmm. he, he really he he brought he, he brought his energy down as low as he could and and well, I think to and good it really effect. worked I thought yeah yeah uh, also was it just me or did, or did they miss a really obvious setup for a, a decent joke at the end of the episode when they got rid of the firefighters and probably you know probably incurred a fine that we don't see but anyway yeah. um, and then and then set a fire in their apartment <laughs> and I I, I was and waiting for didn't... you know them to. Pay yeah, I was, I was waiting for them to try to call the firefighters and them, them being just like, F off. But yeah. no, the episode ended before that could happen. Yeah. Maybe I should be writing a sitcom. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Then you'd have to be writing a sitcom. And based on what networks are putting out right now, maybe, maybe that's not such a good thing. Though, Parks and Rec is coming back next week along with 30 Rock. So, fingers crossed. Yeah, we're, we're, we're really really hurting for next week right now <laughs> there's so much good stuff there's a lot of good stuff coming back next week uh which i'm quite excited about uh this week not so much uh speaking of which let's, top chef yeah let's continue the mediocre run of wednesday tv top chef texas the barbecue episode uh, what, what did you think 
it's amazing how you know you would think the one episode that would like definitely um the, i because I, I i feel like one of the one of the measures of successes for for shows like top chef is how much are you salivating and you would think that a barbecue pit episode in texas would would be through the roof on that one and yet even that didn't happen um I feel like this is yeah I think this is continuing what's the trends for a for a fairly weak season. We have another group challenge and we get another one this coming week as well. Yeah. Uh, so we're not really getting to see the chefs show off individually. We have the um oh boy, how can I say this without being offensive? Um we have the women's be crazy editing which, you know, seems to select a different a different lady villain or or at least lady whiner every two weeks and of course now it was sarah who passed out in the heat um yeah not not all that engaging lately when i was watching it and they got to judges table and colicchio said really any of these people deserve to go home I was kind of hoping he would just eliminate them all and finish the season, you know, however many weeks early, because <laughs> that's just, I mean, I don't care about this season. I usually love Top Chef. I watch Top Chef Just Desserts. I watch Top Chef Masters. I am a foodie. I get into this stuff, and I don't care about any of these people, at least as they're portrayed yeah. on the show. I'm sure in real life, they're all very cool and interesting and all of that, but on this show... I don't care. And I would have stopped watching mm -hmm. if it weren't for the podcast and the fact that I know that several of our listeners watch Top Chef and enjoy it. So let it, let me know, by the way, listeners, if you don't care, I will stop watching it because <laughs> I don't care about the season. Like maybe jump back in for the finale, especially if uh, I think it's Naima is uh, currently in the lead on the uh, the last chance, whatever web thing. Mm -hmm. Of course, she was the chef who got kicked off because Dakota didn't know how to cook her venison. So I'm actually mm -hmm. interested in her story, but that's not being shown on TV. It's just a bunch of people making stupid mistakes and or, you know, being put into ridiculous challenges. Let's be honest. 100 mm -hmm. degrees without being next to a barbecue pit is ridiculous. And it's, I don't have any problem with Sarah leaving she looked completely out of it, and that's not something you mess around with. If they took her off to a hospital, she needed to go. And so then to see mm -hmm. all the sniping back and forth, and I can take some of that if they're if they seem like interesting and good and creative chefs, and none of them do. So mm -hmm. yeah, I, I agree. But this episode did make me realize something, which is that Tom Colicchio is one of the best actors on TV. <laughs> He's pretty he, fun. Maybe, yeah. maybe not the most versatile, but boy, can like one of my favorite things to watch on TV is the way he'll approach a chef when they're preparing something, and just he has this set of looks that can mean anything. <laughs> like he, it most of them probably mean you're an idiot, but it's really he's he's a he's a really inscrutable guy. I find him fascinating to watch when he's when he's talking to the chefs. Well, that was the highlight for me, and it it does actually show you how much of a difference a good host, or in this case, I would say panel of hosts, uh, can make to a show. Colicchio and I would say Gail and Padma, they're interesting, and I enjoy the part of the episodes that they're in way more than any other part of the episode, which, as, as someone who mm -hmm. gets into, like, I've seen more hours of Iron Chef, and by that I mean the real, old-school, badass Iron Chef, 
than I mm-hmm. should probably have ever seen. I love this stuff, and I don't care about watching the cooking. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. But I do enjoy Coleco. You're right. And next week is, is, of course, Restaurant Wars, and I'm already dreading it. I should be psyched for Restaurant Wars. It's usually one of the most entertaining episodes. But we already know what it's going to be, and it's going to be it's the girls versus the guys, and apparently, once again, women be crazy. And uh, so yeah. it's just, uh, I, I'm so over it. So over it. But yep, uh, fair enough. Let, let's go on to Friday. Yeah, we had two second season premieres on IFC. And the first is Portlandia. And here's the thing with me in Portlandia. I had never watched it. Uh, I, a lot of my friends ha- have been putting on at work and, and have been re- and really enjoyed season one. I personally had a childish vendetta against the show <laughs> because I was a tremendous fan of Carrie Branstein's band Slater Kinney. Uh, who broke up and then not very long after that uh, this 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 show came into existence. So I associate this show with the breakup of that band. So I was like, no, I'm not going to support Portlandia on on that very selfish basis. Uh, then it got a second season, and I thought, okay, well maybe I should actually give it a shot, especially since I'm on this bloody TV podcast. So um, I I did, and boy, I think all my friends are nuts. I did not like this at all. Yeah, it's just not funny. For for me, that's my my single note. Not funny, and I know yeah. that the people who like this show love this show, and so I, I I can see that it's working towards a very particular niche, and I actually am going to check out the next episode, even though I may have chuckled once in the entire premiere, but I am going to check out the mm-hmm. second episode because there's a recurring gag in it about Uber Battlestar Galactica fans, and as one of those. Mm-hmm it's a much bigger chance that that will actually speak to me and be entertaining. So I'm going to check it out again. But so you think maybe if the show is catering to your niche, you might like it? Maybe. I don't, I just, I'm trying to understand what so many people see in the show because all I see are not entertaining uh, or just annoying characters who aren't funny and who just continue these, these scenes or sketches just stretch on and I keep waiting for something to happen, and it it doesn't. Like like you 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 keep waiting for that moment where something goes from amu- like it's supposed to have a progression from I assume amusing to annoying to back to being funny again. Mm-hmm. But it it never makes that turnaround for me. Yeah, and I mean this is not this is not working. This is not a bad show. It's just not for me. I think so. I mean I can understand yeah, other I... people liking it. I just I don't see it. I don't see the schooner, so mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm not, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to check in unless, you know, the Battlestar Galactica stuff blows my mind. I don't expect to check in mm-hmm. again. Yeah, I think um, I think for me, the best thing about watching it is just, and I think maybe this is what people are picking up on and to a greater degree than me, is it's, it's very clear that Armisen and Branstein are having a blast making it. And, you know, they have a lot of fun hanging out and, you know, writing this stuff, I assume with a writing team. Uh, but to me, it just didn't translate into laughs. I'm glad they're having a blast. Me, not so much. Yeah. The fun stayed on the screen. Didn't go anywhere. <laughs> I will say that the um, the restaurant sketch with Kamal Nanjani uh, was the closest to being funny for me, as much as I do, mm-hmm. you know, enjoy. I, I enjoy these performers. I am not familiar with... Carrie, I can't remember her last name. Brownstein. Brownstein. Well, she's never acted in anything before. 
she's she was really just known as a musician and so that and that's an interesting transition from from you know a, from a lifelong music career to television comedy that's relatively unprecedented as far as i know well and fred armisen did the same thing just earlier and like, he's great on snl mm -hmm. and I, I do enjoy him but it's just i don't know it's just not for me what do you think of that this in relation to uh poor decisions of todd margaret which also premiered yeah I, this was kind of funny to me because i believe the first season it, it has british style seasons of, of not very many episodes it is, it is actually a british series uh, British produced series that just happens to star David Cross, Will Arnett, uh, and now John Hamm. Go figure. Um, and I I didn't quite see all of the first season, but I saw most of it. And I in the interim between that season and this premiere, I'd forgotten how insanely serialized the show is. I mean, all you know the, the six episodes of the first season all pretty much take place within a twenty four hour time span or something like that, and the whole show is really it is almost just like one long scene in a way because it's it's relentless and just it's in in piling on Todd Margaret's deceptions and uh and you know it just these awful awful things happening to awful people which sounds like it could be unwatchable but it never quite happens um it's it's not a great show but uh seeing it back especially after Portlandia i think what i really liked about it is it doesn't pull any punches it's it doesn't try to gloss up any of its characters, really, uh, particularly the David Cross character, who I, who clearly thinks of himself as a good person, but really, really isn't. And he, he's, I, I like that aspect of his character, that he's, he does what he thinks is, is the best thing for himself and sometimes others, but it's always inevitably the, the exact wrong thing to do. I, I really enjoy that dynamic, um, especially as it played out in his attempted courtship of... Uh, of the female lead whose name escapes me right now. Uh, not brilliant TV, but I did at least chuckle a few times. Yeah, I enjoyed it uh, a lot more than Portlandia. And and I, as I get more distance from it, I think I enjoy it more. You know, like I, I think I'm more positive on it now than I was immediately after finishing the episode. But I, I you know, I jumped in without having seen any of season one. And while, yes, it's very serialized, I, I don't feel like I was lost. So I, I, you know, you were concerned after watching the premiere. I hadn't seen it. You're like, good, good luck. Um, but I, I felt like I, I felt like it worked. There was enough there to remind you of what was, you know, to, to let new viewers in on a few of the jokes that, that it worked. Um, but yeah, I really enjoy seeing David Cross act, um, and play a different mm -hmm. character than I've seen him do before. And, very, you know, very different from, of course, Tobias Funke, which is another, you know, because sometimes, especially stand-ups who sort of have a persona, get cast to play, you know, an, a heightened version of their persona. But in both uh, Arrested Development and here, it's a very, they're very different characters and very interesting. And it's nice to see him as just the sad sack. And I, I think it's very effective. Um, I enjoyed <laughs> the racist rapist um scene was pretty great i thought just like his inability to let it lie you know and that's mm -hmm. that's well and, and that's a joke that you know similar to the Port portlandia thing it did it never went from not funny to you know from funny to not funny back to funny it just stayed funny the whole time so that shows that you can mm -hmm. you know beat a joke to death and still have it you know mm -hmm. like, Still have it work. You mentioned John Hamm. I thought he was fun, and uh, mm -hmm. I, I thought it was one of the rare times because he's, 
like John Hamm is a funny guy, and if you listen to him in interviews, and he, he has a real you know enjoyment of comedy and respect for the comedy scene. So he's a favorite guy to have pop up in different you know guest spots like this cameos uh, because he's really game. And in mm. in many of those, it feels very much like the either Ham or usually more the the creators or writers are sort of breaking you know staring at the breaking the fourth wall, saying, "Hey, look, it's John Ham." And I didn't feel like that was the case here. I thought it was a nice little small thing. There was actually some humor in it, other than the fact that the butler was played by John Hamm. So I thought that mm -hmm. was uh, was enter ent entertaining. And I have a feeling that there's this whole plot line from the first season that has to do with that character. Is that the case? The John Hamm character? No, no, the the assistant. Yeah, the, the assistant, he's... Um... Yeah, he's got a whole thing. And actually, having missed the last couple episodes of the first season, I was actually a bit lost as to what was going on with him because he's in a very different position in this season than he was in, in the first. So I think I may actually go back and, and try to catch up with that a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree the use of, of, of Ham was ideal. And I and it also helped that I had no idea it was going to happen. Yeah. So that, yeah. It, was, it, was, <laughs> it was nicely... Nicely random. Yeah, I, I agree. The more I think about it, the more I the more I'm positive on on this. Um, and it's also interesting that that uh, that it's going to be the last season. Yes, and I think that's smart. Not too many seasons cap it off at at two. Yeah, having seen only this one episode, I do strong. I mean, while I enjoyed the episode, I wasn't amazing, but I enjoyed it. Um, I could easily see how this would become tiresome. So I think it's smart mm -hmm. to end. After two, you know, British length seasons, I would assume about twelve episodes. Um, I think that's smart. Uh, I I will say that Will Arnett was not particularly interesting in this to me. Uh, too much. The character was too mm -hmm. much of a cliche. But I did very much enjoy the ghost dad. And so, <laughs> who is who is one of those actors who I should know his name? I've seen him in a million other things. He was a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, I don't know that I'll check back in, but I, it's, it's one that I may very well wait for the series to finish and then just check it all out, you know, in a marathon mm -hmm. someday when I'm a little under the weather. But I, I enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, fair enough. Spe speaking of things you watch, Supernatural. <laughs> that was an awesome transition, Sam. Good, yeah. Seamless, I, I was really trying seamless. there. Um, yes, Supernatural, this episode was Adventures in Babysitting, and uh, it follows... Uh, the immediate aftermath of a certain character's death, probably, um, which, uh, and I'm not going to say who in case there's somebody who doesn't know, even though, if so, I don't know how you're surviving on the internet um, right now without getting spoiled. But, um, and I have a review up of this on, on the website that'll give my fuller thoughts. I'm just going to kind of do a brief overview here. But basically, it, it really highlighted to me the problem certain shows have with having a 22 episode season and trying to do the somewhat serialized, somewhat standalone thing. Because this episode had um, two, I would say they're both A plots. There wasn't really a hierarchy to them, but a standalone element and a serialized element. And the serialized element felt feels very much stretched out at this point. They have, I feel like they have too many episodes and they feel like they need to touch on these the, the, the larger arc every episode. And because of that, it feels like there's not enough story to fill the time. And so it feels a little bit like twiddling thumbs and it doesn't help that the character beats we're seeing in this arc are all ones that we have seen before and have gotten tired. That doesn't help, but still the, the overall arc is not interesting. But then because they spent so much, so much of the episode on that, 
storyline. The standalone story, which was actually interesting and was, I think, had a lot of potential, didn't get enough time to be really fleshed out. So it wasn't terrible. There were some good moments. I, there's a potential for some time travel wonkiness. So I have a feeling we may see part of this episode again in a future episode, but um, which is which is interesting. But on a whole, not great, but not terrible. And uh, next week is another time travel episode. So I'm pretty stoked. One of the characters is going back to hang out with Elliot Ness. And so it's going to be, I'm sure, very stylized and a lot of fun. So fingers crossed for that, but not a great Supernatural episode this week. And there was mm-hmm. nothing on Saturday. The Fade is starting next week, I believe, yes? Yes. I'm actually, I'm, I know Ricky D is a huge fan of that, so I'm excited to start watching it week to week, uh, see if it's half as good as he thinks it is. Well, and he's going to be putting out reviews on the website uh, as it airs on BBC America. On Sunday, we did have Once Upon a Time. You didn't you didn't watch this one. This was the Rumpelstiltskin uh, back, uh, background episode called Desperate Souls. Um, so, of course, this featured a lot of Robert Carlyle. He's always very good. Um, Brad Dourif showed up as... Um, I, this, I don't want to say who, but as a character um, who who appeared a few times throughout the episode, it's always nice to see him. The modern day story was about the race for sheriff. Um, uh, Jennifer Morrison's character is running for sheriff, uh, trying to win over the candidate selected by the mayor. Um, that wasn't particularly interesting to me. I wasn't because because as soon as the race was announced, you knew that she had to win because that's what fits the story. So that wasn't particularly thrilling, but it wasn't bad either, I would say. The background story in Fairytale Land should have been good. And when I was first watching it, this was another episode written by Jane Espenson, I believe, who I'm a big fan of, but whose recent episodes of things have not been really wowing me. And so when I was watching it, I was starting out some with some frustration towards uh, Jane Espenson, because it didn't feel, seem like a great episode. And then as I thought more about it while I was watching it, I realized the problem was not her script. Her script was fine. The performances, on the most part, were fine. Robert Carlyle is, is fabulous. And so watching him do his thing with Silskin was not the problem. I realized the problem was the music cues, which were terrible. And honestly, I think some of the worst I've seen in television this year. The Whoever's doing the, the score for Once Upon a Time needs to stop. Or the director needs <laughs> to tell them to do something different. Maybe they're very talented and this is what the producers want. I don't know. But the music on Once Upon a Time utterly ruins every scene that it comes into. Because it is so over the top. It is so on the nose that any performance that is happening on the screen immediately gets dialed up several notches just based on the music. And when you have actors you know, given scenes to play not knowing what the music is going to be or something like that. They they act it, what the script says, what the character, you know, will be true for the character. And they, they're doing a good job. And then when you add in this schlocky, melodramatic, in the worst possible way, underscoring, it under, completely undermines any of the, the more nuanced elements of what they're doing. And it's just, just, it's just terrible. They need to stop. There's a lot of really great scoring on television. You, you know, I'm... I've said many times how big a fan I am of, for example, Bear McCreary, and actually, talking about Sherlock earlier in the episode, um, the music on that is another example of fantastic TV scoring, but man, the stuff has gone on once upon a time. It's almost bad enough to make me want to stop watching the show, and it's not often that the Mm. music for a show (laughs) makes me want to stop watching a show, so 
Anyways, sorry, I know I've rambled on about this for a while. Ryan has a review on the site for those who are interested. I'm sure it is probably far less uh, critical of, of the music than, 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 than I am. Um, but that's what's going on with Once Upon a Time, at least for me right now. All right. Uh, keeping with the theme of mediocre things that we didn't really enjoy, uh, House of Lies on Showtime is a new series, and it sounds like a, like a winner. It stars uh, Don Cheadle and Kristen Bell as corporate uh, ad- advisors, or sorry, what, what, what Management. Management consultants, yeah. And don't forget Ben Schwartz as well. Ben Schwartz, yeah, a.k.a. John Ralphio is in there. And uh, yeah, essentially they more or less just bill the hell out of these corporations and give them advice that may or may not help. Not a terrible idea for a show, I guess, at least on the surface, but man, did this pilot just go awry for me on a number of levels. I think the most obvious problem for me with the pilot is the tone. Uh, it's been a long time since I've seen a pilot that feels this smug. It feels so self-satisfied with what it's doing, which is just bolstered by these awful, awful scenes wherein Don Cheadle's character will freeze the action to explain to the audience what his job is and what's and, and you know in this rascally manner. And we don't need it. Their job is not hard to follow. We we don't need every bit of the lingo broken down for us so that we understand what it is they're doing. It's unnecessary, and it's really insulting. Yeah, it's not good even a little bit, and I'm not going to watch anymore. I might check in if, you know, it's, if, if, it, if we hear down the line that it's gotten better, I'm willing to check in again just based on my, my love of Kristen Bell, who I thought was actually fine with what she's given here and it was nice to see her actually playing an adult because i feel like a lot of the times she's uh given these sort of more youthful and uh roles or at least with veronica mars she was wise beyond her years but she was a teenager so it's nice to see her actually getting to play her actual age and somebody who is more i would say interesting and developed than a lot of the other roles that she's given to do um Don Cheadle's always fantastic. The rest of the cast is, is, is very strong as well. It's just what they're given to work with is not interesting. There's no point to a lot of the episode. Uh, uh, did you enjoy the random strip club montage just for funsies? Let's see uh, people doing I, shots I think off of strippers. I, I lost track of the number of times that I rolled my eyes and said, oh, showtime. Because there's so much nudity and swearing just shoehorned in there. I think, isn't isn't the opening shot of the pilot Don Cheadle naked in bed with some lady who yes. never, uh, sorry, his I should say his, uh, his ex-wife. Um, like, they're just trying, everything about the show just screams trying way too hard to be edgy and different and exciting. And it, it really, really doesn't work. Yeah, it's none um, of those and, things. And as for the Kristen Bell character, I mean... I think the problem is she seems a little bit too intelligent for the show on some level. Ah. Like I, I, I don't really buy that she cares about the Don Cheadle character at all. No. Like it doesn't really make any sense. I think you're supposed to, I think you're supposed to, I couldn't tell if you were supposed to be rooting for them or something to get together or at least be friends, but I didn't pick up on that at all. Like there are a few glances shared between the two of them late in the episode that I have a feeling we're supposed to mean something, but they mm-hmm. really didn't, at least to me. Yeah, and then that awful scene, I mean, the last scene of the pilot when one of them calls the other one and, and Don yeah. Cheadle starts being all, you know, 
starts having like a quiet moment to himself and then oh never mind like oh so yeah. insulting yeah oh uh, yeah this really really didn't do it for me i, I think I, I i chuckled once or twice uh i i forget where but mm-hmm. i felt bad afterwards <laughs> so. did you chuckle at the uh r- random lesbianism just just throw that in there we're just gonna have the one oh. chick jump on the other chick as soon as yeah, they- yeah more more showtime goodness Wow. Um, and yeah. And also like the uh, this really, you know, perfunctory attempt to be timely, you know, by talking about, you know, these you know, in- investment banks and people just be people spending well beyond their means and all this other junk, but it really just doesn't come together at all. No. Now, unfortunately, this is not your least favorite pilot this week, uh, or your your most frustrating pilot this week. So that award nope. goes to the firm. Go ahead and uh, <sighs> what makes the firm worse, at least to you, than than Work It and House of Lies? <clears throat> okay, I'm gonna try my best. Uh, well, first of all, it's four times longer than Work It. That's a problem. This is like an 85, without commercials, this is like an 84, 85 minute pilot. That's too long. The question was floated around, I think, by Seppenwall earlier this week. Has any show that's had a two hour pilot ever been notably, like, has that ever done anything for a show where it's had like an extended pilot? And really, I I can't think of, of, of any examples. And boy, did this, so basically you're talking about a movie length pilot and you're you're also talking about i thought it was going to be a revival of a you know of a 20 year old john grisham adaptation of a film no this is a sequel which just seems incredibly i mean first i mean a remake would have been dumb a sequel is even dumber and you've got a mostly great cast you've got uh josh lucas molly parker uh, you've got Callum Keith Rennie, and of course the presence of Molly Parker and Callum Keith Rennie tells you what you may have already figured out, which is that this is shot in Toronto. Uh, which I did. They, do they ever actually say what city it's supposed to be? It's supposed to be DC. Oh yes, right. So Toronto's, I guess Toronto's versatile that way. So Toronto is DC now. Um, although if you're looking, you can tell that it's Toronto. Um, and then you've got Juliette Lewis, who I really loathe, but I won't go there. She's the, she's the least of the show's problems. Uh, everything about this is leaden and obvious and dumb. If you're going to do a legal drama, regardless of whether or not it's also a conspiracy thriller, you, in the age of the good wife, you have to come hard. You have to, you've really got to step your game up, and this didn't even break even. Uh, everything about this was boring, overlong, obvious, and painful to watch. The most annoying and frustrating part of having a two-hour premiere was that it was a two-hour premiere, the bulk of which was a standalone episode. It was a procedural. Yeah. No one needs a two-hour procedural. There's, what, like maybe (laughs) half an hour of continuing elements? But this isn't a world that you need to set up and really introduce characters to, as in, for example, the Firefly Firefly pilot or the Lost pilot or these other shows which have complex mythologies or whatever that need to be established. No, this is just a, a, a what, a half of an episode of setup of, of the, for those who didn't see the original movie or read the book. And then the rest of it is a case of the week. And just... I, I put on, up on Twitter uh, that 
I have a feeling lawyers must feel about this show and really a lot of legal procedurals uh, the way that I feel about all of the terrible violin playing I see on television. Of, <laughs> that's just not even a little bit right. Not even a little. Like, uh, there's somebody on, uh, there's a witness up, and just halfway through, uh, Josh Lucas's character just stops asking questions and just starts giving a closing statement while, like, to the person on the witness stand, and nobody objects, and it just is just unbelievable that, that in this day and age, with when there are legal procedurals that are so much better and so much more accurate that this is what we're given. It's just mm -hmm. astonishing. And I really enjoy a lot of these. I like Molly Parker. She's fabulous. I've been rewatching some Deadwood recently and it was great to see her because I haven't seen her. I miss Swingtown. So I haven't seen her in anything since, uh, since Deadwood. And it's great to see her get some work. I also really enjoy Callum Keith Rennie. And when you get to Battlestar, you're going to understand just how wasted, for example, Trisha Helfer is in mm -hmm. this as as the boss. But it's just, who thought that this needed two hours? Well, and the most insulting part of how insanely long it is, is the episode opens with this tag of, of it's six weeks into the after what most of what we're seeing. And Josh Lucas is running away from some baddies on... Which is not, you know, it's not an exciting sequence at all. Um, and he gets to this impasse in a, in a hotel room and everything's gone wrong. And we cut back to six weeks previous and, you know, setting up the rest of the show. And then, of course, we go back to what we saw at the beginning, at the end of the episode. And it doesn't even resolve. Yeah. It's still a cliffhanger in that one scene. Like yeah. you had 85 minutes to get that done with and you didn't even do that. Mm -hmm. You assholes. Yeah, it's pretty oh. ridiculous. And even just things like I was watching this with my sister, and in one of the early scenes, it's the daughter's, uh, it's it's the daughter's tenth birthday, and she's sitting out and having pancakes with her dad, and it's strongly implied that she's like just woken up and having a morning breakfast, and she has this like intricately braided hair that, <laughs> and so I'm sitting there like, okay, no ten year old has braided her own hair that way. That's just not going to happen. And if she, so, so did her mom sit her up, you know, and braid her hair like that and brush it just so, so that she could go down and have breakfast? Like that, <laughs> At the, eight in the morning, yeah. These are the things that I'm thinking about while watching the show. And that is not a good sign. Yeah. And the writing for the daughter is just awful. Like just even awful. a step below everything else in the episode. Uh, the music is awful, as I'm sure you noticed. Not as bad as Once Upon a Time, but yes, it is not good. Yeah. Really goosing at every moment which is ungooseable yeah um like i said i i really really hate juliet lewis she always <laughs> plays the same character and she's doing it here so annoying such a waste of space and time did you like um, how the uh the guy who conspired twice to have a 14 year old murdered doesn't deserve to go to jail isn't that what jail is for for people who conspired <laughs> to have 14 year olds murdered i don't care what they did oh like, yeah, yeah yeah well you know th there was a f there was a few hilarious things about that subplot first of all I love that it takes Josh Lucas, like, a full day to come up with this plan that seems insanely obvious. Yeah. Um, considering they already have the equipment. <laughs> and two, yeah, you're right. Like, the show's, like, ethical dilemmas or whatever they set up are totally ludicrous. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he gets another lawyer to sign off on it and just that yeah. whole setup was so unbelievable. 
I mean, yeah. my my standards for reality in in legal drama are based on other legal dramas because I've never been in a courtroom. But it's like even based on by the those law standards, and order, you know, level of air quotes reality. This is just yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I sort of take law and order as reality or some cl- or like sort of the the baseline level of reality. Yeah, fictionalized. Uh, whereas this is yeah. This, yeah, whereas this was just a cartoon. Uh, you're right. Yeah. The courtroom scenes are absolutely ludicrous. Um, and I, you know, and I like Josh Lucas a lot. I've seen him be great and stuff, but he is, he's just had a history of just being in, in the most awful shit. Um, but you know, as with work it, we were vindicated by the ratings this week. This got the worst as you can maybe not quote me on this, but apparently it got the worst debut for a new NBC drama possibly ever. Yeah. Something like that. Which is very bad. Damn. Damn. Yeah, this got a smackdown. We'll see if that changes on Thursdays when it moves to its regular time slot, but a little better about uh, Prime Suspect, you know? <laughs> yeah, uh, well, when has changing time slots helped anyone? Um, yeah, this this just hurts my brain to think about. So yes, The Firm, you get my my nod for the worst pilot of the week. Way to go. That's actually a very considerable achievement. <laughs> Let's move on to a positive review for once. Yeah. I assume, at least I liked it. I assume you did too. We had the premiere of Downton Abbey on PBS this week, season two. Um, mm-hmm. World War One has kicked off and we pick up, I believe, a couple years after where we were. What did you think of the premiere? Um, I thought, it, 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 I feel like there were some advances this this uh, with this premiere and some steps back. Um, I I, th- I remember complaining about, in particular, the character of Thomas, and just in general, the way the show seems content to have some characters just be one note and evil. And <laughs> what's funny is that there's some inklings of advancement in the character of of Thomas. Maybe we'll see what happens there. But then uh, the really the most disappointing aspect of the episode to me was the was the note of Bates's wife and her appearance. And because you know they they just need uh, something to wit to have a wedge between Bates and Anna, and so they bring back the wife who's just this horrible horrible bitch, and you know just w- the, the idea that that Bates first of all married her in the first place and continues to have her around and puts up with her at all I think is pushing the honorable aspect of his character too far. Uh, and anyway, well, I guess we'll see where that goes. But that aspect of the show, of the episode, I didn't, I didn't really like. The rest, I thought, was fairly strong. Yeah, as for the the Bates and his wife thing, I liked that they dropped a line in there to say that the wife had just wouldn't let him get, t- wouldn't take a divorce, and then sort of disappeared. And so she's only recently re- reemerged. I was glad to get that bit of information because otherwise, I think it really wouldn't make sense. Um, and but yes, you're right. She definitely appears to be the villain of the piece, at least for the downstairs element of the story this season. I was actually rather disappointed to see Thomas re- recur. Um, I was hoping that he would just be gone, and so they appear to be contriving to send him back to Downton-ish somehow. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. But I really am not looking forward to to having him back because I, I enjoyed him as the sort of just cackling villain, just utter bad guy that he was last year. But I'm not really interested in watching him be like developed and changed and into like into this more nuanced and uh, 
Like, actually, he's not that bad of a guy. Because you can't undo all the terrible things he did last season. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm not really interested in seeing more of that, especially from the same character. And I'm not really interested in, in seeing him learn the error of his ways. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I don't know. We'll see what happens with it. I Hopefully we'll be absolutely wrong and we'll come to love that character like story. Um, as for uh, the rest of it, I thought it was nice to see the 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 address to, for them to address the who's going to war and who's staying behind element to mm-hmm. the the servants and the other characters i liked the the, the gradation of response from uh william i want to say yes the servant who's uh whose father doesn't want him to enlist to yeah, yeah, yeah. uh the you know so there are a couple different responses to it i think the 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 white feather thing was a, a nice touch. It's it's so mm-hmm. strange to think of, you know, in, in our sensibilities and with our knowledge of how terrible and brutal World War One and then later World War Two were, to think of this notion of shaming people, trying to shame people into getting their heads blown off, you know, it's... Mm-hmm. It's such, you know, so I think... Or, that you know, or, or choking on gas in some awful trench. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did like the uh, getting to see the Dowager Countess and Lady Isabel be on the same side. That was fun. I like what we get with Sybil. Mm-hmm. I'm still I still don't care about Edith at all. Um, mm-hmm. But no. I thought that the Matthew and Mary stuff we get here is interesting. I like that they didn't just throw them back together as soon as early in the episode. Matthew says he's in the trenches and he has some leave. He says he's going to go see a girl. I'm like, oh, oh man. And and then I was glad to see it wasn't as straightforward as we might think. Um, it didn't feel contrived, mm-hmm. which I was surprised about. No, I, I, I'm still having a really hard time caring about Mary. Mm-hmm. I know other people do. I'm not quite there yet. We'll see if, if they can manage to swing that for me. I still enjoy hey. Carson's favoritism towards her. I, I think it's sweet to see uh, him talking, you know, like... Oh, Mr. Uh, Sir Matthew or Cousin Matthew just went and broke her heart. He's like so protective. I think it's adorable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that that stuff is cute. Um, yeah, I'm I'm definitely curious to see where it goes from here. I I know that generally the impression of this season is that it's not as good as the first. Uh, I think there's you know there's maybe some evidence for that in this episode, but we'll we'll see how it goes. I th- I think it's still going to be a, a solid watch, especially compared to some of the other uh, detritus that's getting thrown around. And since I've been talking about music so much this episode, let's give a shout out to using actual musicians in the concert scene. That was nice. And uh, it's astonishing what a difference it makes because even though the music didn't line up with their fingers, because, you know, you could see that they like when they were editing it, they, you know, moved the soundtrack a bit, you know, here and there to work with the timing and stuff. The the physicality is, is correct. And, that's mm-hmm. what makes the biggest difference, as opposed to on on the season premiere of Sherlock, he's playing some violin because Sherlock Holmes plays a lot of violin. And even though on set it, the music was perfectly synced, when they edited it, it wasn't. And because Benedict Cumberbatch is not a violinist, it feels really fake. Whereas here, even though the music doesn't match, it feels completely real because they look right and they have the right physicality to it. So it's it's very nice to have some actual mm-hmm. musicians. <laughs> I, I, I do th- I, I do think though while we're on the general theme this week of, of TV music 
I, I'm not really a big fan of the way the show's scored. I I think they're they're also very the music itself is fine, but the mixing is a little is is a little bit full frontal, especially mm-hmm. on scenes that are meant to be more emotional. They they really goose that stuff pretty hard. Yeah, it doesn't really bother me because I feel like the show is so heightened anyways that it, that it's sort of mm-hmm. appropriate. But I can I can see what you're saying about that though. Um, but for for me, it just sort of adds to the whole periodness of of the of the piece it's nice to see even just small touches like of course it's such a well-produced show but even the costuming is so particular and such a different look than it was at the end of last season particularly the women Mm -hmm. and uh so it it is just it's a lovely show it looks great it it sounds you know depending on your feeling you know the levels of the music but overall like the production quality is so great that it's especially in a week like this it's nice to have some well-made TV. Mm, for sure. Um, any final thoughts on your week in TV, sir? Uh, only that next week can only be better. Yay! We have <laughs> we have Archer coming back. We got Justified coming back. We have Thirty Rock coming oh, back. We don't uh, have Justified coming back because, unfortunately, our next podcast is going to come out the morning of Justified's return. So we're two podcasts. Oh until we yeah, talk that's about right. It. Yeah, uh, I, I, we considered moving the podcast to so like shifting it a day so we could talk about it right after it aired, but decided that was idiotic. So we're not going to actually do that. But uh, yeah, but, that's but, that's too bad. Yeah, we do also have the, you know, the, let's not get ahead of ourselves. We have the pilot of Rob and Are You There, Chelsea? Oh. Yeah, uh. so we will have a few other similar, I one assumes, maybe they'll surprise us, but probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, pilots coming right. this week, but yes, you're right. There's a lot of of good stuff coming too. So let's move into. We're gonna take a quick break and move into our spotlight this week. We are spotlighting Good Wife's alienation of affection, and so we'll take a, a break, listen to some music, and come right back. <laughs> String Quartet in D Major, Opus 30, number 6, which was used in this week's episode of The Good Wife. Classical music, making it on the podcast. So I was so excited when I heard it because I was so perfect. The the, the music uh, in this episode was so perfect for the scenes that it was used in and just so much fun. But I, I really enjoyed this episode. Uh, thank goodness, right? But we, we had Good Wife and, and Down mm-hmm. Abbey to sort of save the week for us. Uh, what did you think of Alienation of Affection? Yeah, Downton Abbey and Good Wife were sort of like spraying perfume all over the shit sandwich that was this week, uh, if I may make a crude metaphor. Uh, I really, really, really enjoyed this. Uh, and you know what's funny is that for all the people who are really impressed with Maggie Smith on Downton Abbey for her sassiness, they really need to be watching Good Wife. Yeah. Because there was so much quality sass this week. Just in the scenes uh, between Zach Grenier and Alan Cumming alone, <laughs> it, was like, it was off the charts. Off yeah. the charts. Um, 
Especially, and it's doubly so given that we'd already seen Zach Grenier earlier in the episode in a Gilbert and Sullivan costume. <laughs> oh my god, I love that so much. And I love how underfoot, <laughs> I love how every time somebody sort of, came, a new person came in, he gave them a different line and a different response. I thought it was hilarious. That was actually my mm-hmm. initial, like, I was watching it, and the first thing I, I tweeted, because sometimes I tweet when, you know, I'm watching these things, was, Gilbert and Sullivan! <laughs> it, was, it was hilarious. And when you're speaking of Zach Grenier and Alan Cumming, how fabulous, to skip ahead just a bit, was that scene of Diane just shushing them. <laughs> Act like adults, you two. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. And can I can I just have an awkward straight guy moment and just say that Christine Baranski was distractingly hot this week? Looking What's good. going on? I think it's looking I, good. You know, I, I like whenever they bring in her love interest. She has the best love interest on this show. Seriously, right? Between Gary Cole and now Brian Brown as Jack Copeland. Like, I just love mm-hmm. the characters that they bring in for her to to find interesting. So, yeah. Well, and, and it, it's what's really cool about it is that it they make it very clear that she has a type. Yeah. Like she's not really she's not really interested in going out with him until she sees him wrestle a guy in the <laughs> in in the lobby at which yeah. point she's like, "Hey, this can fill the Gary Cole slot in my life." Um and that that was great. But what we're sort of shortchanging right now is that even though it was a really really funny episode, it was also almost unbearably tense at times. Mm-hmm. Like and especially like this is the genius of the good wife is they can have an entire episode that's mostly centered around them trying to find a piece of paper. Yeah. That's literally what most of the episode is about. And it's so tense. It's so yeah. tense. How did they do that? I don't know, really. Because, you know, you watch other shows that have incredibly tense moments. Of course, last season or last year, we were talking about the, the finale of Homeland for its ridiculous tension and and some of the great moments in Breaking Bad last season, which had such fabulous tension. But it was, a, you know, it's a different sort of tension, but you're absolutely right. There's so much, as soon as you realize, I mean, and for me, it was a bit on the nose, the way they zoomed in on Alicia Florick's name as the person who had logged mm-hmm. the, the, you know, the pages, but just the scenes of, of, of her, uh, you know, which I think was played fabulously by Juliana Margulies, just realizing, oh shit, I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know, you know, because I think we've all had that moment in our lives, right? Where you're yeah. like, no, I totally did that. I totally, oh, fuck, you know. Well, and it's, you know, when you're when you're talking about, you know, working for a major law firm and handling all these documents, like, it's, it's amazing that other lawyer shows don't ever think to just have people screw up. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, th- these are all people who are perfect at their jobs, even though they're processing thousands and thousands and thousands of bits of information at a time. And it, 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 I mean, it's a very natural thing to happen, and uh, and it, it made for some really great drama. I I really liked uh, Matt Chukri's sort of entrance near the end of the episode, which you saw coming, uh, given his position. But I I, I really liked uh, his his last scene in particular with Juliana Margulies. I thought fabulous. that was sweet. Yeah, uh, and and really well really well played by both of them. Well, and it's, uh, we also had sorry, uh, go ahead. Yeah, it's it's just refreshing to see characters change. And stay mm-hmm. because that's something that is so rarely shown in in particularly uh, comedies, I would say, but definitely in dramas as well. To see a character go through have something happen and go through a progression, and be a different person because they were changed, you know, or like their their attitudes towards something. In this case, uh, Carrie's attitude towards Lockhart Gardner, 
he's past it. He's finally moved on and he's not holding on to these stupid petty grudges anymore. And he can, mm -hmm. he has a clarity about his time at Lockhart Gardner that is, that is wonderful to see. And it's so much more realistic than when you have characters, modern <clears throat> family, constantly regressing to the same three, you know, <laughs> lessons learned. So I thought it was great. I mean, of course, it's well played by Matt Zucri and the scene with uh, Juliana Margulies and, and, and him is, is very nice. But more than that, I was just impressed by the writers allowing the character to have developed and changed and be in a different point in his life. Yeah, they they don't go the easy route and just have him be like a sniveling villain, which Zukri could totally do. He and would has. be great at that. Yeah. And has been great at that. Uh, but yeah, you're right. They go the more interesting, the more realistic route. We also have the return of Carrie Preston, who I guess is going to be sticking around because she's uh, now representing Will. Yes. I do think I do think they slightly overplayed her quirkiness a couple of times in the episode. I mean, I know it's I know it's basically an act, but still pushing it a little far, especially in the scene with her unfinished office. See, I don't feel like, like it's, it's, it's I don't feel like it's an act. I think that's her. Yeah, yeah, but either way, it's whether or not you think it's she's playing it up or not. I do think it was a little bit it was a little overdone, um, but. That being said, the fact that she, what, what I what I like about her character is she seems like the protagonist of a different show. Yes. Who's just who's just been dropped into this pretty straightforward universe. Oh my and, god, that's you know, hilarious. Here she is with it. That is totally and, true. <laughs> yeah, and and honestly, her show probably wouldn't be that great, but but seeing her in this context is is fantastic, and uh, I'm I'm really excited to see her and Will interact more. Yeah. When you said that, that hadn't occurred to me before, but you're absolutely right. She's a character who would have her own USA uh, procedural uh, about mm -hmm. her quirky ways that she solves cases and defends her clients. And it'd be like if Sean Spencer showed up for, you know, an episode or, or more accurately, somebody like Monk, you know, showed up for an episode as an independent contractor and then dropped back out. So... Oh, that's that's fabulous, mm -hmm. and and yeah, Elizabeth Tassioni. Just I at first when I saw Edward Herman's name in the credits, I assumed that they were going to go with with that character to be his def defense attorney. So I was very uh, pleased when when I saw that uh, that, that mm -hmm. she was going to be around long term. And plus, I think she'll be great with Wendy Scott Carter. Uh, yeah, uh, speaking of quality sass, I mean, having those two characters square off was already delightful in this episode, and I think it's going to continue to be just fantastic. Uh, in fact, I, I think the, the, the thing with the, the Carrie Preston character is I think we're waiting for her to put a foot wrong. Yeah. And see what happens when, like, when, when, when you know that occurs. Because if, if anything, is she's been too good so far. Which is another thing about her being uh, the protagonist of another show is she's a, she might be a little bit too good at her job. <laughs> so we'll we'll have to. But you know, this is the good wife, so she will screw up at some point. Uh, anyway, very excited to see where all this is going. And once again, I mean, just with with the addition of. Um, of Christine Baranski's new new love interest. I mean, the, the ensemble of this show is just getting ludicrous. Well, and before we get too much further, we got to mention F. Mary Abraham, uh, who was fabulous. Right. And it was yeah. such a delightful yeah. surprise to see him show up. Yeah, it was it, it was weird when he showed up on Louis because no one had seen him in 20 years. That might be an, an exaggeration, but I haven't seen him in, in, in anything in a long time. And I, But I guess that, that sort of kicked off his reappearance and here he is again and 
he uh i was a little disappointed that his character didn't turn out to be a little more cunning i guess but especially since they all spoke very highly of him but uh still very cool to see him uh, i would so love if this was just the prelude to his return later in the season or next season as a more prominent recurring uh antagonist i think that would be great especially because it's I, as soon as they said someone was coming in from la i assumed it would be rita wilson's character again as the la lawyer who interacts with them now and again but i it was and i think that would be interesting and i have no problem with that at all but i, w- I was so glad to see him uh I, i'm a big fan of f mary abraham and yeah I, th- I think he's been doing theater and so that's why he hasn't been in as many you know tv and and film roles but but yes mm-hmm. i i i really hope that he you know he comes back the way that we have some of the recurring judges and some of the recurring um like tassioni and such it would be nice to, to see that i i would assume i think it's very rare that they that they have a character that never returns yeah. they, they tend to to bring back characters just just when you'd almost semi forgotten about them mm-hmm. so which is another great thing they do yeah anyway i love the show i'm yeah. really happy that it's back and and uh kicking ass and taking names yeah you're absolutely right it's so nice to have to have the show back so looking forward to next week and uh having something you know we can rely on for our spotlight section is just fabulous um, now, see a few notes before we go to our DVD shelf with Bill Macy. Our intro and outro music is Sweet Petite by the Bicycles. We are up on Mevio and Current. If you're not an iTunes person, if you are an iTunes person, you can leave us a rating there. It'd be fabulous to get some more ratings and reviews. It really helps this, the uh, the site and the show. So uh, that would be great. Let's see. We have our email, which is theteleverse at gmail.com. Our Twitter is I'm at theteleverse. You are at sucker howl and then of course we're going to have a post up on soundonsite.org which will you know have you can comment there and and let us know what you thought about this week's tv maybe somebody likes work it or the firm it could Mm -hmm. happen and I, I also happen to know that uh, michael ryan who writes our obsessive compulsive procedural column is writing about the firm this week and spoiler alert he didn't like it It did occur to me we don't have anybody covering The Good Wife on on our site, which seems kind of strange, but mm-hmm. anyways. Um, Maybe now, we should work on that. We should. I feel like I, I kind of wanted to talk about it, to write about it this week, but then I didn't want to sign up for yet another show to cover. So, oh, Fringe is coming back yeah, this, this week as well, before I forget. Um, now, before we go into our thing, I wanted to mention we want to do a Chicago meetup for when you come here. Yes, we're going to try to, we, we, there are a few uh, contributors to Sound on Sight we know are in the Chicago area. Of course, I'm in, I'm in the uh, suburbs of Chicago. You're going to be here from February, what are the dates again? I'm looking at the 20th to the 24th right now. Yes, heading out on the, on the morning of the 24th, as I recall. So the, and that's like a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday evening kind of time. So if you are interested, yeah. send us an email, put, uh, you know, meet up or something in in the subject line or you could you know you can leave a comment on the on the website if, if you're interested as well but for the most part we'll probably be coordinating that via email so so let us know but it would be great to meet some of you i know apparently based on his twitter name ken is in chicago and there may be some more of you it'd be great to put some faces with some names so and also you can send it let us know any suggestions of how we should spend our evenings or our, our, our chicago time I'm assuming we'll hit up the Art Institute, of course, check out the bean. We already have plans to go to Frontera Grill because I want some of that pie. 
Um, but <laughs> I seriously dream about their chocolate pecan pie. It's so good. Um, but anyway, so if you're interested, let us, let us know. What are your, what, is there anything that you want to make sure that you do while you're in Chicago, sir? Uh, I, I mean, I'd like to go to, I'd like to check out some repertory theaters if possible. Uh, but mostly whenever I'm in a new city, I just like to walk and walk and walk and walk and look and walk. I'm boring that way. <laughs> Maybe we can go on the architecture tour. It's a, uh, pretty awesome. standard thing, but it's, but it's fun. So anyways, let us know about that. And, uh, and it would be great to, to get to, to meet some of y'all. So we're going to take a break now and come back with my discussion with Bill Macy on the outer limits. So we'll be right back. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. If we wish to make it louder, we will bring up the volume. If we wish to make it softer, we will tune it to a whisper. We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. We can roll the image. Make it flutter. We can change the focus to a soft blur or sharpen it to crystal clarity. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. We repeat, there is nothing wrong with your television set. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to the outer limits. We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kulzik. Unfortunately, Simon Howell wasn't able to join us today for the DVD shelf, but I am happy to welcome Bill Macy. Of course, you read his articles, his fabulous articles on Sound on Sight. He's a 25-year veteran of HBO, and as well as a playwright, or a author, and professor, and all sorts of other uh, impressive things. Bill, welcome to the show. Nice to be here, Kate. Thank you. Uh, now you chose the outer limits. The of course, I will specify for those children of the eighties and nineties like myself. <laughs> we're talking about the nineteen sixty three outer limits. Right. What is it that prompted you to choose this show? Well, what's funny is I didn't get to watch it very much uh, at the time. It was on a little late for me, and my parents thought it would scare me. Um, but it went into syndication almost immediately after it was canceled, and that's when I got to see it. And it was so distinctive from so much of what was on TV at the time. You know, it was the mid-60s. Things hadn't gotten too politicized on TV yet. You know, so there was a lot of sitcom stuff, a lot of fun stuff. And Outer Limits had this kind of bleak, noiry against the grain quality to it. Even as a kid, you were struck by it. The same way that, and I know uh, that people listening in, a lot of them are probably better acquainted with The Twilight Zone, which kind of sort of hit the same vein. Um, but it, it, there was just something about it that cut through the clutter. Um, and some of the imagery, especially if you were a kid, um, plugged into your primal nightmare. <laughs> Yeah, I know when I started looking into The Outer Limits, the original series, I was very surprised to see that it was only on for two years. It only had two seasons. Not even two full seasons. Yeah. Was, uh, they, they, they were canceled in January of the second season, so there's only uh, 49 episodes. 
Yeah, well, and it's a series that has had such influence over the years that I just, and I'd seen reruns for so much, I just kind of assumed, it, like the Twilight Zone, that it had gone on for years and years. And so I was very surprised to learn that. I don't don't know why uh, this show didn't catch on quite the same way as the Twilight Zone did. There was a lot of factors that went into that, and the biggest one, um, and this should come as no surprise to any fan of TV, um, were the battles between the guys who created the show and the network. The network never really quite understood what it was they had. To them, um, they thought it was a monster show. Mm. Monster shows skewed towards kids. And that's what they wanted. And eventually in the second season, uh, most of the creative staff that had shaped the show were gone. And the network got their way, and that finally killed the show. Um, that was the biggest uh, thing that I think. Had the other thing was that by the 60s, the whole idea of an anthology show, sadly, um, was dead. I mean, it had been dying since the 50s, but people wanted to see the same characters coming back week after week, a certain um, comfortable repeating formula. And shows like The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits didn't give you that. Each week was going to be something new, something different, new cast, new concept, new story. And um, people just got to the point where they weren't, I don't know if you want to call it laziness or something, but they didn't want to make that effort. They wanted the familiar. So two things, I think that pretty much killed the show. Yeah, and I'm such a fan of the anthology series format. I'm too much of a scaredy cat to see the Masters of Horror uh, series that <laughs> HBO did for a while. But other than that, the only show I can think of even that even has that sort of idea was Nero Wolf, which was you know this mystery, mystery series on on cable for a while that had a couple of recurring characters and then the same actors they would bring in to be different characters every week for the mystery of the week, but I love the anthology series format. And I think with, there's so much you could do with it, especially now that television has increasingly more, more production value. You, they bring in these incredibly talented people to do, to do uh TV. And I just, I think it's a shame that you don't see more of that. I actually think the, the ex- expanded choice that you have now, with all the cable channels of work, that actually works against the idea of a anthology series. It becomes more strategically important that you have uh, a clearly defined identity so people can find you at it at 100 channels yeah. and know what you're going to get. People don't like to dabble. As I said, you got to flip through 100 channels. You want to know where you're going and what you're going to get. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, the mid-50s is like the high point of that kind of television, and then it slowly tapers off. And there were a couple of series in the late 50s, early 60s that kind of cheated it. If you ever have heard of a series called The Naked City, mm-hmm. it had recurring characters, but the main plot of it was never the main characters. They were cops, and each week they would get a case, but the focus would really be on the characters in that case. Or in The Fugitive, it was another thing is is he would really only be a, the fugitive david jansen would only be a primer the bulk of the show would focus on these people that he had stumbled into and it was kind of a way of cheating the anthology in there because mm-hmm. again as i said there was a point at which people 
I want to come back to the same thing. I want to see, I want to see Dick jump over the hassock every week. <laughs> well, let's let's talk more specifically about the Outer Limits. It's funny hearing it described as a monster show because while that element is in there, of course, it it's so much more than that, and it's clearly so much more than that. I mean, every week it's a different morality play. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. And, uh, Leslie Stevens, who was the gentleman who created Outer Limits. Um, he had a concept in mind that was vaguely similar to what Rod Serling was trying to do with the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone was more oriented towards the fantastic, but Serling wanted to use fantasy as a, as a way of telling adult drama morality tales. Leslie Stevens was leaning more towards sci-fi, but for the same reason, it wasn't going to be this escapist sci-fi adventure thing, but a different vehicle to tell adult, as you said, morality plays. And that's what most of the best episodes of the show are. Speaking of, are there particular episodes? I only got to see a few. Um, the one that really stands out for me was the Zanti Misfits. Uh, are you familiar? Oh, yeah. It scared the crap out of me, man. Um, it, it's funny. I have a book uh, that I bought years ago about the series. And it's usually the one that most people remember from the show um, simply because the iconography in it is, is so bold. The bugs with the, the people's head for the uninitiated um, <laughs> it, it concerns a penal chip uh, from another planet that's sent to Earth, and the aliens are these kind of insect-like things, but with human faces on them. With little evil beards, ah, scraggly, yeah. and demonic, and ah. And, uh, I mean, some of the effects for the time, you know, they don't hold up now. Oh, yeah. They'd probably, they'd probably all do it with CGI. But if if you can get past that and just get into the meat of the show, it's a, that, it's a very striking episode. And the moral of it, they're sent here because their home planet is so civilized they cannot execute their own criminals. They send them here knowing that no matter how much they warn us not to interfere with them, that human being human actually will do their killing for them. And that's, that's how it plays out. Well, and you're speaking of the production values. I mean, it's incredibly obvious claymation. You know, it's it's you can see the strings, literally, later in yeah, the episode. Yeah. But... I mean, and I was I was watching it. I was sitting there going, "I know this shouldn't be scaring me. I know that is clearly a little bug made out of clay with googly eyes on it or something." But it was still incredibly effective, and I would assume a lot of that is because it, you know you don't get into that uncanny valley thing that happens nowadays with CG or other things where you know it looks close but not quite. It's so different than what you would normally see or what I would expect to see in a, in a series like this, that, that that it's effective. And then the other thing is that I think the first time you see them, first of all, they wait until pretty far into the episode. It's Oh yeah, they hold off. Which works really well. And then it's Bruce Dern's performance, I think. He's the first to see them and the first to react, and he really nails that and sells... The, the the fear of the moment and I think that translates despite all the the dated effects it's still incredibly effective uh, there's a sequence in there it's when he's killed um, 
his actual death you don't see. Mm-hmm. You only hear it happen over a radio speaker. And you hear and you hear the screaming and every and it's um it's Steven Spielberg and Jaws. What you don't see can be more frightening than what you do see. Uh, I mean, the show throughout its time always was bumping up against its budget. Yeah, uh, uh, throughout the run of the show, ABC was it, they were never spending a lot of money on the show. And throughout the run, they kept cutting the budget back. Uh, they were the number three network. They didn't have as much money to spend as the other shows. And what Leslie Stevens and his people were trying to do was so ambitious to begin with. Um, I mean, you could argue that it was something you shouldn't have tried to do for TV. Well, and for me, the probably the most effective thing about the episode is the sound design. It's very intelligently handled. There's a shot in there. Um, the first time you don't quite see the aliens, you're actually looking out the window of their spaceship. And you only see uh, one of their antenna. I mean, you don't really know what it is you're seeing. You won't know till later. But you hear it squeaking against the glass as it rubs up against the glass. Ah, sorry. And then, <laughs> and then there's that uh, kind of um, buzzing undertone they gave them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing was uh, there was a gentleman named Dominic Frontier that Leslie Stevens had brought in to be the house composer of the show. But they had a larger than what was typical for TV orchestra. So the show always had a nice, rich sound to it. You know, I mean, there were times where it sounded bigger than it really was. Um, but uh, a very creatively put together show. Remember on Zandy Misfits, they shipped it on an old West Backstreet uh, set. Mm-hmm. The studio, you know, all the studios still had back lots. And they just used that, and it worked perfectly for that show. Yeah. Well, and it's something that, you know, talking about these morality plays, the, at least the episodes I saw, many of them felt very theatrical in their structure, just in, you know, small casts and dialogue scenes, like parlor scenes, not a lot of, I mean, Xanti Misfits, at least of what I saw, was um, a bit unusual in its amount of action and chase, but a lot of um, more theater-based Scenes, and I think that's probably um, an accurate reflection of TV at the time because it was more strongly connected to the theater. Well, it, well, the thinking behind the show, a lot of the people who were involved in it, there's more of a New York mindset than an LA Hollywood mindset. And uh, you see it in the casting. I mean, there's not a lot of glamour pusses in that throughout that series. Mm-hmm. It took people that, that showed up. Uh, Martin Landau did a couple, Robert Duvall did a couple, Carol O'Connor, Bruce Dern. Actors, not faces, actors. And that was very much out of the New York TV tradition, even though the show was based out of L.A. Leslie Stevens had a theater live TV background, and the guy he hired to be his number two was Joseph Stefano, who real Hitchcock aficionado remembers the guy who wrote the screenplay for Psycho. Mm. And he got hired for this after Psycho. And he was um, Stevens' creative right hand. He had a, a lot of uh, input into the shaping of scripts, almost tweaked every screenplay that went through. So there was a level of... Um, I mean, you say theatricality, there, there's a literacy level mm-hmm. that you see in the 
dialogue there that you don't see in a lot of commercial TV. Yeah, I, I can see what you're saying. Another name I would add to that list was, of course, it was a lot of fun to see a very young Martin Sheen in, in oh, one of the yeah. episodes. Nightmare. He's a nightmare. Yeah. I mean, it was a episode. Yeah, there's just, I mean, because, of course, you know, these all these different names, and they're not always in the, the lead or the showy part, too, which I also really appreciate. And uh, whereas a lot of the times... I mean, don't get me wrong, I love Twilight Zone, but a lot of the times it was, oh, the Shatner episode or the, the Burgess Meredith episode or the, as opposed to it being about the character as much. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I don't remember these episodes based on which actor was in which episode, but I remember it for the story and for what it was saying. And, and I think that's a distinction between the two, between the two uh, series. Yeah, well, I think it came about because Twilight Zone was very much Rod Sterling's baby all the way. He wrote most of the episodes. He created the show. I mean, he was involved in every show. And Outer Limits, um, eventually Leslie Stevens had compiled a team. Mm-hmm. So it became, it was less a single vision driving everything than everybody coming together on what it was they thought the show should be. So episode to episode, as, as you said, there's more of an ensemble feel than there is that any one of these episodes is going to be a star vehicle. Yeah. I, I probably shouldn't even say star vehicle because at the time Twilight Zone was on, a lot of those guys weren't star, stars. But they were more single character focused. And part of that may have simply been that it was a 25-minute as opposed to this, mm-hmm. which was a 50-minute show. Let's talk, we're running low on time, but let's talk briefly about the cinematography because there's some gorgeous, gorgeous cinematography in this series. They had two or three cinematographers rotating on the show, but the one everybody should know about is Conrad Hall. Conrad Hall would go on to become, and it acknowledges one of the great all-time Hollywood cinematographers, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Mm-hmm. Cool Hand Luke. I think his last movie was Road to Perdition. I mean, he, he was uh, always a phenomenal cinematographer. And what he was able to do on those rushed schedules and limited budgets is just astounding. There's particularly one called The Man Who Was Never Born, which they characterized, uh, rightly so, I think, as a sci-fi fairy tale. Mm-hmm. But Beauty and the Beast show with a sci-fi context. And it just looks gorgeous. And in black and white, too. Um, but it had this... The only word for it is a beauty. You usually think of black and white as being a more harsh or noiry kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, this was elegant. And, and as I said, to think of him doing it on the kind of schedules you have on TV and with the money they had, um, it, it just really knocks you for a loop what they were able to accomplish. Absolutely. Now, I mentioned Xanti Misfits as, as my favorite. Do you have any other particular favorites? Well, we've mentioned two of them. One was Xanti. Uh, the other one was Nightmare. And I just mentioned uh, The Man Who Was Never Born. Um, I, I, those, I would say, have to be my three favorites. I mean, there's a, a number of others that, that are a lot of fun or some have these beautiful bits. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the things, that are trademarks that I think people who remember the show remember is what they called the control voice, the narration that would bring you in and out. 
Mm-hmm. Because it was no character, there was it was no on-screen narrator, um, and a guy named Vic Perrin had a lovely voice. And from what I understand, Leslie Stevens wrote all of the intros um, in the time that he was with the show. But they didn't always know what the complete show was going to be. <laughs> so he would just kind of like glom on to whatever the theme of it was. They'd write it. Perrin would come down. He'd do his five, ten-minute taping. And then they'd worry about whether or not it was actually going to fit the show later. <laughs> Well, it has to have one of the most iconic and memorable opening sequences or themes of all television. I think up until you get to your generation, probably everybody who's ever watched TV uh, remembered, do not attempt to control your TV set. Mm-hmm. And they would do, of course, nowadays, with digital transmission and everything, people probably wouldn't even recognize the static and the rolling bars and the check pattern you know, you'd have to explain it to people they didn't change it for the dvd which i thought was pretty cute uh it's they uh rather than the um do not attempt to adjust the knob or whatever the the yeah, the words yeah. Are. they did alter it slightly to fit the dvd format which i thought was pretty cute but i mean that's we, we stole part of it for our intro for the televerse because it's just it's it's just iconic. It's great. I, I keep waiting for it to pop up in a commercial or something, the way that, you know, the Bonanza theme and Dragnet and all these other famous old themes have become jingles. And so I kind well, of yeah. keep... <laughs> it, it's right up there with, um, with the way Serling would open up, mm-hmm. the way Twilight Zone opened up, or the way Dragnet used to open up. This is the city. Mm-hmm. Now, there, there, there were those signatures that for a couple of generations you never forgot yeah i'm not so sure we have those as as much now and i think it's because um for the same reason they did away with theme songs they're so worried about you changing channels that they try and get into the show as fast as possible and it doesn't give you that breathing space that you used to have at the head of a show to give people 30 seconds or a minute to settle in yeah i i uh I always enjoy series that have opening credits, particularly when they fit a show partic- you know, really well, like The Big Bang Theory or Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So I feel yeah. like it's always the, the comedies that have them, but there's something about setting the mood before yeah. you go into a show. And for something particularly as stylized as The Outer Limits, I think you need it. Yeah. Uh, and again, because it was going to be different every week. Mm-hmm. And they wanted, and it was going to be a bit different from whatever you've been watching the rest of the night or the rest of the week. And it gives you a chance, as you said, to mood, get your head where it needs to be before before we get started. Yeah. Well, we should wrap up. Are there any final thoughts you have about? I know we just scratched the surface, but any final thoughts on Outer Limits? It's interesting that when they tried to remake the series, I forget how many when that was, was 80s or 90s 90s yeah um they didn't get what the original tried to do and worse than that in color <laughs> it looked so awful <laughs> and you really realize and i remember they tried to do the same thing by bringing back the twilight zone mm-hmm. those were shows that demanded black and white they just don't work in color there's something about them something about the mood of those shows that will not tolerate color and I miss that. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I mean, it was nice. You could flip over and watch Bonanza and Living Color, and then you could flip over and watch uh, Outer Limits and get the crap scared out of you. <laughs> and I, I miss that variety. You know, there's a lot of stuff on. Uh, there's a lot of stuff I love, but they all look the same. They feel different, and they're about different things, but they all look the same. Back then, you had more of a spread. Yeah. Um, I guess the last thing I would mention, we didn't mention probably the mo- one of the more controversial episodes, at least behind the scenes, Demon with a Glass Hand by, of course, Harlan Ellison, one of the big names in science fiction, um, which as another memorable episode. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for picking The Outer Limits because it was nice to be reminded of some of this great television that I just remember sort of from reruns in my childhood and hadn't revisit, revisited, so. Yeah, it was my pleasure to, to revisit it myself. So where can our listeners find you online? Um, actually, Sound On Sight is uh, the best place to find me. It's uh, where I'm doing most of my stuff. Yeah, and we're, of course, so glad to have, have you on there. Uh, there's several articles that Bill has on the site that are particularly um shall we say, well commented upon and have sparked some furious debate, which is always a lot of fun. So I would say... Yes, you rebutted me. (laughs) I did rebut you. I disagree with you on that particular topic, uh, which was about... um, You wrote this this great article that Ebert retweeted and so kind of blew up about uh, the the classics sort of fading from popular consciousness and memory. Um, And so I had a rebuttal that I put up at the site, but of course, always with respect. Um, I'm glad to have the conversation. It's always a lot of fun. Of course, our listeners can also find your books on Amazon and other places. You're a multi-published author. You've published several books. Which are all on, on you know fiction, nonfiction. So, um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, my pleasure, Kate. And we will be back next week with another episode of the Televerse. Thanks for listening. Board with counting. <laughs> okay, go team. This is awesome. Okay.